Good afternoon. It's Wednesday, the 7th of October 2020, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. Your host today, Mike Robinson, myself, Brian Gerrish, and we're delighted to be joined by David Scott, bringing us northern exposure from north of the border. And yes, it is a Wednesday if you're slightly confused at the running order. Well, the leader has spoken, Mike. The, the Herr Boris has spoken. The Führer. The Führer, yes. We're going to build back better. Now, I'm going to offend everybody now by uh, playing a little bit of uh, his conference speech from yesterday. Uh, but you'll understand why once you've, uh, once you've heard this. All we've been through, it isn't enough just to go back to normal. We've lost too much. We've mourned too many. We've been through too much frustration and hardship just to settle for the status quo ante to think that life can go on as it was before the plague. And it will not, because history teaches us that events of this magnitude, wars, famines, plagues, events that affect the vast bulk of humanity as this virus has, they don't just come and go. They are more often than not the trigger for an acceleration of social and economic change, because we human beings will simply not content ourselves with a repair job. We see these moments as the time to learn and to improve on the world that went before. And that's why this government will build back better. Uh, David, uh, welcome to the programme. I'm going to start off by asking you, uh, is Boris being honest when he suggests that he's actually a human being? Well, I, t I tell you, one thing that struck me is that was a that was a, a description of the end of conservatism. That was we are not going to conserve. We're not going to go back to the way things were. We're not going to hold them as they are. We're not going to have gradual change. We're going to have revolutionary change. So we've got a conservative party that's now officially not conservative. We're going to illiberal liberal Democrat party. In Scotland, we've got Scottish nationalists who are anti-Scots and don't believe in the nation. And we've got a Labour party that hate the working man. It's quite a set. Uh, well, it is indeed. And uh, the th of course, this is all based on the premise that, first of all, we faced a plague, Brian. A plague is the word that he used. Uh, and that it's been such, so, such or so impactful on our lives that we have to uh, completely turn society on its head. Yeah, yeah it's wordplay, Mike. This is all malicious applied behavioural psychology. These speeches are being written where every word, every dot, every part of the sentence is constructed for political purposes. He has clearly not written this, but this is applied psychology. Um, so let's uh, move on with uh, Boris Al to his friends. And he went on to say this, in the depths of the Second World War in 1942, when just about everything had gone wrong, the government sketched out a vision of the post-war New Jerusalem that they wanted to build. Uh, and that is what we're doing now in the teeth of this pandemic. Uh, and he said, uh, we're resolving not to go back to 29, 19, uh, but to do better, to reform our system of government. Um, and I would like to know, David, who it was that uh, gave him a mandate uh, to reform our system of government. I mean, there's plenty to say about our system of government and how it's not functioning at the moment. But of course, it's not functioning because of the actions of, well, pretty much everybody from Tony Blair forward in particular. Um, but nonetheless, that doesn't mean you throw out the baby with the bathwater. Uh, you fix the corruption that has, uh, has, has been brought in, surely. That's the, uh, that's the way to approach this. 
it would be unless you're taken by the spirit of rebellion. Who gave him permission? COVID. COVID is the ticket to any totalitarian dream that any politician now has, because COVID is the answer to everything. What about our, what about our freedoms? COVID. COVID says no. Um, well, of course, the mainstream media focused not so much on the changing of our system of government, uh, but on, uh, on this, uh, on the fact that we're going to have offshore wind power, uh, offshore wind, 150 million pounds he's going to spend on this. This was the main headline. Uh, Green New Deal. What is this speech really about the Green New Deal building back better? Uh, 150 million pounds for offshore wind, 2,000 jobs going to be created, he claims, uh, and uh, he's going to create a, giga, a gigawatt of, of generating capacity by 2035 or something ridiculous like this. Uh, let's just put this in a bit of perspective. £150 million announced by the Tory party uh, government for this uh, project. Compare that to what we announced or what we reported last week, the announcement of £100 billion uh, being spent to bring in daily COVID testing. This has got nothing to do with the Green New, New Deal at all. The, the Green New Deal is a headline that the press can push forward. This is actually about uh, a, a medical dictatorship, Brian. And we're going to hear a bit more of this later because uh, we got on the, back on the subject of Tobias with what he was saying earlier in the year where he was also focused on the fact that the COVID pandemic is the key to everything. It is the future of the world. Uh, but David, politics is a team sport, according to Rishi Sunak. Yes. Now, on the subject of conservatives who are no longer conservative, I bring you Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor of the Exchequer. Politics is a team sport was the, was the title of his speech to the Conservative Party conference. Um, so that's collectivism, right? We're all clear of what that means. That's we're all in it together. It's two. It's groups against one another, but it's essentially collectivist in its mindset. Okay. What did he say next, though? Uh, well, he said this, our values are old and true. They are universal because they're rooted in the fundamental belief that individual freedom enables both the greatest achievement and the gentlest kindness. Right. So there we go. Now, whoever crafted that is very proud of that. That's a, that's a, a quality bit of, bit of wordsmithing right there. And it says, no, we're conservative. We, we support the individual. So the title of, of the, the speech is collectivist, but, but he's then saying, well, we're individualist. It's all about the individual. We support the, the, the ordinary man and, and, and it's all about the quality of that ordinary man that will, will shape society. The, that, so that's now the, the view. But, but what did he say next? Uh, well, next it gets even better because even if this moment is more difficult than you've ever faced, even if it feels like there's no hope, I'm telling you that there is and that the overwhelming might of the British state will be placed at your service. Now, I, what, the question I have for you who is he actually speaking to here? Because it's not the general public, I propose. Uh, and when he says that the might of the British state will be placed at your service, he's talking about somebody else. Well, maybe. But so he goes, we're going to have a speech about collectivism and we're all individuals. And then he comes with this. I mean, the overwhelming might of the British state will be placed at your service. It sounds like Darth Vader describing the power of the dark side. It is the most totalitarian socialist, fascist, pick your word, communist concept that's possible to have, the overwhelming might of the state. And this is this is what do you do? And what do you place your hope when times are hard? The state. That's the very definition of fascism. So he's he's got 
he's dressed this up with words about individualism and freedom, but the core of the message is the power of the state will rule all. But he, what he's saying is it will be placed at your service. Yes, and you're quite right, Mike. Who is your? Who's he referring to when he says your service? Because the, the common man is meant to think it's for, for them. But of course, that's not really the way it's going to play out. Who Who is the your he's referring to? I would love to know. Good question. Well, it is a good question, and we're going to ask that a bit later in, in the news. But as just say, David, remember that uh, Rishi's made that statement talking about gentleness as we've had tens of thousands of elderly people simply killed off. I'm going to use the word murdered in the care homes as a result of policy from his government. Um, but he went on, David, uh, and we will protect the public finances over the medium term, getting our borrowing and debt back under control. Yes, because we stand for prudence. We stand for fiscal. We've, we've just we've just stopped collecting tax. We've put the entire economy on hold. We're printing money. We've got 150 billion that we, we, we've just um, retired of public debt uh, via the Bank of England. It hasn't cost us a penny. We're just monetizing the debt. But don't worry, because we're conservative. We stand for fiscal prudence. Does this remind you of anybody? Yes. Yes. Gordy, Gordy Brown, our first fit, the man who wrecked the economy, who, who presided over the greatest, until now, the greatest uh, recession since the, great, since the Great Depression. Our first fiscal rule is that over the cycle, we balance the current budget. So what do hopeless chancellors who have no idea what to do say? Well, we're not balancing the budget now. We've no idea what to do now. Well, we've got one idea, which is we print money and we spend it. And that's our only idea. But we don't want you to know that's our only idea. So we'll make vague promises that over the medium term, it's all going to be fine. You know, it's prudence. So yes, so Rishi is now Gordon Brown Mark II. I would put it to you, Mike, that's not a good thing to be. No, indeed. But we don't need to worry because he will always be pragmatic. Yeah, now I love this one, right? So pragmatism is, is not having any fixed principles. That's the definition of pragmatism. You just go with what works. So he's announced in a speech about conservative principles He's announced that he has none. I thought that was quite stunning. Absolutely. Oh, I'm not allowed to say that. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, let's just move on and have a look at this question of who we're dealing with in government. And a big thank you to one of our viewers who sent me a letter they'd received from their MP, Dr. Julian uh, Lewis. Now, Dr. Julian Lewis was uh, head of the Intelligence and Security Committee. Then he wasn't. And now apparently he is. So there's been some interesting movement. But uh, in doing some research, I wanted to share this with our viewers. And, and it's starting to get to grips with the fact we do not know who is running the government. So here's a lady, Catherine Haddon. She was speaking for the Institute for Government. You'll find the article online. Recommend you read the full thing. Uh, but she says that the ISC, the Intelligence Security Committee, already has a credibility problem, which in part stems from its unique position amongst parliamentary committees, created in 1994 as part of the same legislation that finally brought MI6 and GCHQ into official existence. The committee, unlike parliamentary select committees, was created by an Act of Parliament, the 1994 Intelligence and Services Act, which was updated in 2013, 
remember that last date, 2013. The legislation gives the ISC's members unparalleled access to highly sensitive information, but its analysis takes place behind closed doors and its reliance on the government for supplying information. So we've got quasi-freedom here, Mike. We've got a committee with oversight, but it can only give oversight if the government gives it the information it needs. And if we have time in today's news, we'll be talking about ICSA, and we have the same problem with ICSA. The members and secretariat of the ISA have to balance the need to build sufficient trust with the intelligence community against exerting sufficient independence to probe them properly. And the committee's access to the intelligence agencies has always depended as much on the perceived competence and experience of its members as on their statutory powers. I think some good analysis by this lady. On occasions, this delicate relationship has broken down. This was demonstrated during the ISC's inquiry into the UK's history on rendition, during which it became evident that the committee was ignorant of key aspects of government policy and practice, partly because of MI6's failure to disclose information. Now we're getting into it. People who are ignorant because they don't know what's happening in the government and the intelligence services simply failing to disclose information. And I'll just put a, a star in here, of course, when she says rendition, what she's actually talking about is torture by the British state. After a long delay, Parliament's Joint Intelligence Security Committee has finally been formed, but not with the government's choice of chair. Catherine Haddon argues that the future of the committee will depend on what the government does next. So, so now, just this is the 18th of July. This was being said. Yes. Mike. So, so just to clarify, uh, if you remember, what happened was that Julian Lewis had been proposed as the chair for the ISC, uh, but uh, this was at the time that the Russia report was about to be published, and Boris uh, overrode that using the whips. Uh, and uh, well, Julian, Julian Lewis then complained about that uh, publicly, and he then had the whip removed from him. Uh, for a period of time. He's now had the whip restored and he has been put in as chair of the ISC. Now, now I'm not sure exactly what did that happened on. It was after the 18th of July, but uh, yep. certainly on Monday when he was speaking in, in, uh, in Parliament, he was speaking as the chair of the ISC. Right, okay, that's perfect, Mike. So against the background where we've got people analysing how this very important committee works, but saying, well, some of the people don't actually know what's going on. The government doesn't give them the information. The intelligence services don't give them the information. But somebody gave us information, and this was part of a letter uh, this, uh, that uh, this MP had sent out in his constituency. Uh, opening paragraph, and it was August, but it's still pertinent. I'm obviously irritated by the withdrawal of the whip especially as I've later discovered that neither the chief whip nor anyone else had informed the prime minister that the law had been changed in 2013 specifically to remove the right of the prime minister to be able to choose the ISC chairman from that time onwards. Hopefully the situation will right itself when things sound, settle down a little more. So I'm going to put in a big what here because what we're describing is that the government is now acting beyond the law. We simply don't follow the law when we're dealing with oversight of very potentially very, very dangerous people, the intelligence uh, committee. So he was upset. Something's happened in the background, but somebody broke the law. Will they be brought in front of a court? I don't think so. Now, here's some comment from earlier in the year 
Um, and I'm just pointing out that these people are raising interesting points, don't agree with all their politics. So this man, Dominic Grieve, was former chair of ISC, and he said the government simply doesn't understand what the Intelligence and, and Security Committee is there to do. So now we've got an, a former MP saying, well, the government's not bright enough to understand its job. If you were to attend meetings, obviously they take place in secret. You wouldn't know who's a member of a political party. So he's, he's uh, protecting um, Julian Lewis by saying that. But he goes on. So the idea there's something wrong in Julian Lewis getting support from Labour or SNP MPs to become the chair cannot be right because that is to politicise it in a party political way. Whereas the statute which sets this committee up makes it quite clear that it's for the committee members at their first meeting to elect a chair. Very quickly, David, what I see here is really what you were talking about earlier on, is that we've got a cabal at work inside government making up the law. They act as a team, as a collective. They don't care what the law is. Or no, it would seem, including the Prime Minister. It all, there's also, there's also a, there are so many moving parts now, so many changes being made to the system that we once knew. It, it, it seems that like COVID regulations themselves, no one really knows anymore what the law is meant to be. Indeed. So we're now in a lawless state. And that, of course, is a very, very dangerous position to be in. So let's just have a look at the next bit that Dominic Greaves said. Uh, he said, there's what troubles me about this episode, quite apart from its utter absurdity, and now withdrawing the whip from Julian, who is indeed highly respected, is, quote, the mindset it gives about what is going on in Downing Street. But of course, what we're seeing is that nobody knows what's going on in Downing Street. We have your, David, uh, government of occupation. And this is key, because here's the word. Why did they try to manipulate this process? They shouldn't have done. The committee can only exist. The committee can only be respected if it's seen to be non-partisan and independent. So we have a group of individuals, which an MP can only call they, who are manipulating the law inside government. We need to be asking who they, who are the people that form this group, they, but what we can really tell our audience is that these are the, certainly the people who are now the government of occupation acting outside of the law, as we've seen. And just a, a comment, if we have a government of they, where even MPs are unsure of who's in control, and they operate in partnership with the intelligence services, and they control the release of information regarding their secret activities, particularly Mike, your fusion doctrine, which you're con constantly and correctly warning about, spying on the British public by 77 Brigade, and troops on the streets of Britain, which we've got now, then we have had an internal coup. And David, I'm going to say you're spot on. We're ruled by a government of occupation. Yes, and, and where does it get its direction from? It looks increasingly international. There's directions coming from uh, UN World Health, World Health Organization, and none of it's transparent. The means by which these, these instructions are transmitted, the decisions at which they're adopted, None of it is open to any sort of viewing by the British public, let alone comment, control or influence by the British public. And clearly, as you point out there, Brian, not even an MP now understands how the system of government is working. 
Right now against that background very quickly because we've got a very busy news today I'm going to bring Tobias Elwood back up on screen now this is an article from back in April 2020 um, Tobias Elwood uh, wrote it the global race for a vaccine will turn nasty get ready for cyber attacks and data theft uh, but this is a couple of the quotes from it it's a race in which the prize could hardly be greater the dash to find a vaccine there will be no true exit from the coronavirus disaster without one so he knows what the future is going to be if we allow this uh, government of occupation to get away with it there's been an impressive level of information sharing around the world and credit must go to microsoft billionaire bill gates and his effort to promote uh, fair manufacturing distribution when finally a vaccine emerges the pandemic has not changed uh, damaged china despite the responsibility it carries the opposite is happening china is emerging stronger than ever is china in the brackets never mind what's happening in the uk it's all china and he even says that we're getting back into the 1930s with nationalism a global recession recession and a demise um, it, uh, in world order that could easily lead to war so that was all the fear-mongering setting up the pandemic and remember that uh, Mike's put his uh, recent parliamentary speech up on UK column news where he's basically saying give us give the military more control of the country but we know that this man is a backer of billionaire Bill Gates so are we looking for a UK controlled by a military government under the control of Bill Gates or is that a bit too cynical David the 1930s weren't about nationalism right you had in Europe um, a German dominated multinational super state looking to create a, an entire free trade zone from the Euros to the Atlantic and in the East you had the Japanese looking to create uh, an Asian zone of prosperity uh, all the way down to India. These were about multinational, multi-ethnic super states being formed. It wasn't about one country hitting the neighboring country over the head. Interesting point. Well, I know there's a lot to think about, but at least I'm gonna say at least we're clearly uh, seeing people start to ask the right questions about their government, our government, the Westminster government, and who the people are who are bringing this mayhem into this country. Um, so on Monday, uh, we had the second reading of the Covert Human Intelligence Sources Criminal Conduct Bill 2019-2021. Uh, and Julian Lewis, who we've just been talking about uh, as chair of the uh, ISC, uh, was giving it uh, all the support that he could. Um, so clearly the uh, Intelligence and Security Committee is not concerned in any way about this. Now, let's just remind ourselves uh, what this bill is about. Uh, it is a bill to make provision for and connection with the authorization of criminal conduct in, co in the course of or otherwise in connection with the conduct of co covert human intelligence sources. Um, so this is all about uh, the, the criminality allowed by agents of the government uh, various government departments and we'll remind you what the government departments are in the moment uh, in a moment uh, but James Brokenshire uh, was the uh, the Minister of State who was giving the uh, the, the information there uh, where they're from um, I'm not quite sure originally but anyway he's he was the uh, relevant minister giving the statement in the house this legislation he said is being introduced to keep our country safe uh, to ensure that our operational agencies 
and public authorities have access to the tools and intelligence they need to keep us safe. And David, that is all it's about, keeping us safe. Yes, that's the, that's the cry the whole time. All they've got to do is frighten the public enough and they'll give up the liberty in return for safety and, of course, get neither. Although it is quite impressive that uh, corruption in the UK is now reached the level of papal indulgences. Uh, I think that's a, a milestone worth noting. Uh, OK, well, let's uh, go on with what he had to say. Throughout history, uh, those entrusted to uphold the law or safeguard national security have, been have used covert human intelligence to support and progress their activity. Now, uh, one of the key uh, objections from many uh, over this legislation is the fact that there is no limit uh, placed within the legislation um, on uh, what types of criminal activity are allowed to take place. Um, so some people suggesting that, you know, it might be a good idea that in the legislation there's, there's some kind of restrictions on what type of criminal activity maybe you want to prevent murder or or, or, or uh, sexual violence of some kind, uh, or maybe torture. Uh, Brian's already mentioned that the British government, uh, of course, has been involved in torture in the past. So anyway, the, he said, uh, you know, throughout history, those entrusted, they've always used covert human intelligence. And the first example he chose, David, uh, was uh, Sir Francis Walsingham and his use of informers to defend the reign of Elizabeth I. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm pretty sure that uh, Walsingham used quite a lot of torture uh, in his defence of Queen Elizabeth I. Yes. Was that not the origin of the 007, um, Monica? It, uh, it I'm going to say, quite, I believe, quite far ago. I believe it is. Ago. I've got John D in my mind uh, around this bracket somewhere. Yeah, well, look, look uh, so anyway, he, he decided Walsingham was, was a good, uh, was a good um, uh, example to use. But let's just remind ourselves, who can authorise criminality uh, under this legislation? Any police force, uh, the National Crime Agency, uh, the Serious Fraud Office, any of the intelligence services, any of Her Majesty's forces, uh, Her Majesty's Revenue and Customs, the Department of Health and Social Care, uh, the Home Office, the Ministry of Justice, the Competition and Markets Authority, the Environment Agency, uh, the Financial Conduct Authority, the Food Standards Agency and the Gambling Commission. And really much of the debate on Monday was asking why these agencies needed the ability to authorise criminality. Uh, and James Brokenshire's uh, response was, uh, I point out that the Food Standards Agency is required to deal with issues associated with misrepresentation of food, food that may be harmful for human consumption. So, uh, David, I'm not clear exactly why that requires criminality on the part of the Food Standards Agency or their agents. It seems a bit of a stretch, although I'm quite enjoying the fact that we're now operating with monopoly money and we've got a bill going through Parliament to introduce a literal get-out-of-jail-free card. It seems appropriate. Uh, absolutely. So let's uh, move on. Uh, he went on to say, I hope uh, you will also... This was in response to a query about what protections there were against uh, the more extreme types of, uh, of law-breaking that might take place. And he said, I hope he will also have noted the specific reference to the Human Rights Act in the bill in order to underline some of the important points he makes about convention rights. So the question, he was really uh, kept reinforcing this notion uh, that because on the front page of the bill, it talks about the Human Rights Act and the European Convention on Human Rights, 
uh, that, that we don't need to worry about anything. There's nothing to worry about. But look, the, the bottom line here is that these pieces of legislation might uh, imply protections at this point in time, but what happens in the future? Um, so if we look at, for example, uh, this uh, from the Equality and Human Rights Commission, and they were asking a long time, some time ago, what does Brexit mean for equality and human rights in the UK? And they say, one of the questions they ask is, what is the European Convention on Human Rights? And they say the ECHR protects the human rights of people in countries that belong to the Council of Europe, which is a completely different organization to the EU. The UK will still be signed up to the ECHR when it leaves the EU. In Britain, our human rights under the ECHR are protected by the Human Rights Act 1998. Okay, so this is what he's talking about. This is what Broken Shire is talking about, the Human Rights Act 1998. But the point is that since 2015, the British government has been saying, we don't want to be part of the ECHR. We want our own British Bill of Rights. Uh, and they've been acting, working very, very hard to bring that about. So uh, the uh, Quality and Human Rights Commission here saying what is, asking what is the British Bill of Rights? And they say we do not currently have a British Bill of Rights. Uh, this was included in the Conservative government's 2015 election manifesto. It was planned as new legislation to replace the Human Rights Act. So the Conservative Party has, for a number of years, had a policy of replacing the Human Rights Act. We don't know exactly what it's going to be replaced with. And if anybody thinks, well, that was something that the 2015 government was working towards, Boris isn't doing anything of the kind. Well, actually, it's still absolutely on the cards because a former uh, Tory party uh, attorney general, this is uh, Jeffrey Cox, lining himself up uh, to be, you know, forming this Bill of Rights. So new Bill of Rights could be hugely constructive. Chief Law Officer says this is from February this year. Uh, and uh, so this hasn't gone away. And if we're thinking about how are or what the protections that, that the Bill of or that the uh, ECHR has given to people that have been affected by bad behavior by the police and the security services in the past, uh, that we can look and see what kind of uh, protection they've had and that the answer is absolutely none. So the spy cop sandal, scandal being an example here. So this is Lush, the uh, the, the shopping chain uh, with a, a blog post talking about it, why police spying on campaigning citizens should be exposed. Uh, the Guardian was absolutely upfront in uh, pushing this, police spying activist personal life uh, monitored and recorded in detail. And of course, uh, they were um, getting involved in sexual relations with, with people that they were spying on. So uh, it's not like the British government doesn't have form in this area, but it gets better uh, because let's uh, remind ourselves what else this act says. Um, it's to be expected that there would not be state responsibility. So one of the things that this act does, David, is it removes any responsibility that the state has over the behavior of its agents um, in taking part in criminal activity. Uh, it just gets better. I mean, that, that seems unconscionable. I mean, that, that just seems utterly beyond the pale. So it, saying that the state can give someone a get out of jail free card to commit any crime, and then no matter how, because that's not qualified, no matter how inappropriate um, unintentioned, badly executed, you know, or, or, or wrong-headed that might be, you have no claim. That's, that's astonishing. 
it gets better. But don't worry, uh, in, because it's all going to happen in a way in which agencies are required to act under the bill. It means that they cannot act in a way that is inconsistent with convention rights. So you don't have to worry at all. Um, uh, but then uh, here is uh, our friend Steve Baker, MP for Wickham. Uh, could he clarify why the armed forces uh, might need to engage in criminal conduct? I suspect it's because he gave him a get out of jail free card here, but uh, uh, Brokenshire didn't take it. Uh, I suspect it's because they each operate their own military police and he was speculating that perhaps that's the reason. Uh, but Brokenshire went on to say this. Uh, he said, uh, one further example I would give is that it might be necessary to access a prescribed organization. Uh, now, of course, in the past, uh, there may have been some justification for that, for example, with the IRA. Uh, but David, I'm not certain I'm aware of any prescribed organizations that are active at this point in time or active in the future that uh, might you know, require this type of criminality by the military. Since when was the military put in charge uh, of an investigation on a domestic level? That seems a, a hostage of fortune just to put that into the, into the legislation now. And also the basic principle is we're authorizing crimes, which by definition, are infringements on the rights of others to be to have their property and their body and everything else respected. So we're authorizing infringements on other people's rights, but we're going to do it in a way that respects the rights. This is completely incoherent. Uh, absolutely, uh, it gets better. Uh, now, uh, this is uh, Zara Sultana, MP for Coventry South, and she gave quite a, uh, quite a speech, but nonetheless, this was the key Point. As far as I was concerned, this bill will block future claims brought forward, being brought forward, since it outlaws civil action against authorised activities. Um, this is really significant, I think, because at least in the past, uh, you know, the argument was made that in the past, uh, where criminal activity was required by an agent of the state, um, that, okay, they... Uh, it, it was viewed as criminal activity and generally uh, the Department for Public Prosecutions would say it wasn't in the, pub, pu in the, uh, uh, in the interest of, of the public to prosecute. Uh, but at least where there was wrongdoing done, uh, there was an opportunity for some kind of civil redress if there was no criminal redress given by the, by the government. That has now been taken away, David, and that is massive. It's huge. It's huge. And it, it basically puts us in a position of, well, slaves is the word that comes to mind. Um, okay, so let's just uh, finish off with uh, Zara Sultana again. Uh, this bill marks the latest step in a frightening descent into authoritarianism by this government. It must be resisted. And I think, Brian, uh, that sums it up. It really must be resisted and people need to be engaging with their MPs from now until this bill continues through its uh, its passage through parliament because it needs to be stopped that's absolutely correct mike this lady has spoken out she's saying the right things she needs a huge amount of public support and evidence being given to her to make her job easier we're often attacking mps for their failure to stand up when people do stand up and start to say the right thing they should have massive public support behind them so i'm going to say for our viewers and listeners today you should be getting on the phone getting onto those emails and letters and giving this lady support because she's clearly seeing it 
Um, well, yeah. uh, we were talking about the missing 300 with respect to the emergency coronavirus legislation renewal the other day. Uh, well, goodness knows how many were missing for this one. So this was the final tally on the vote. Uh, 182 MPs. This was the second reading of this covert intelligence, uh, covert, covert human intelligence sources uh, criminal conduct bill. 182 voted for it. All Tories, uh, 20 MPs voted against it. Uh, most of them Labour, uh, and most of them in, uh, around the Jeremy Corbyn camp. Um, but everybody else abstained. So again, David, we've got a complete. Uh, Lack of opposition. Is well, a complete we lack of opposition and a complete refusal to engage by our MPs with the democratic process. Yes, as our, as our rights the nation has slowly changed out of all recognition, one of the footnotes is that um, the parliament just stood by and watched. The, the, the political process itself has failed, which is usually what happens when uh, totalitarian uh, governments are coming in. It, they, they don't come in for no reason. They come in because there's a vacuum, and there's a vacuum there uh, in the heart of power because no one, no one has the intellect, courage, or inclination to um, resist. Uh, and of course, that vacuum isn't just in Parliament; it's also in the media. Now, this is the Guardian from 2010. The Guardian covered this subject very well in 2010, uh, but this particular article. Uh, councils carry out over 8,500 covert surveillance uh, operations. This is local authorities running covert surveillance on local people in their local communities. The Guardian was vocal about this in 2010. In 2020, it's silent. So, you know, it's not just, David, about a, a vacuum in Parliament. It's about a vacuum in the mainstream press as well. And while the mainstream press is not engaging with this and questioning it and having that discussion, uh, <laughs> this puts us in a very dangerous position. Oh, oh for sure. Yes, the, the, the difference um, north and south of the border in the amount of scrutiny coming from the mainstream press to all branches of government, if you compare now with, say, the 1970s or 80s, is extremely striking. Um, it, it's now the press seem to be wholly owned. Any thoughts? Uh, well, they are wholly owned, and uh, I'm just gonna, very shortly talking about an interview I did where one of the factors in the interview is the failure of the media to engage when they know that essentially wrongdoing criminal activities taking place. Okay, so uh, a few quick advertisements then. Uh, first of all, if you like what the UK Column does and you would like to support us, then please head over to ukcolumn.org forward slash community and there are options to help us out there and that would be very much appreciated. Uh, AV 11.1, the speakers list is now available. Tickets are now available for it. This will be a, 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 a virtual event. Again, it's on Sunday the 1st of November uh, from 9 a.m. to 10 p.m. Uh, I think there'll probably be something happening on the Saturday evening as well. Uh, but the uh, confirmed speakers so far are Brian, uh, Gary Fruin, uh, Paul Sales from Australia, Gemma, Do Gemma Doherty and John Walters from Ireland, David Dubain from the USA, uh, William Engdahl from Germany, uh, Alex Thompson uh, from the UK column and obviously the Netherlands, Thomas Sheridan, Debbie Evans and Ian R. Crane is hoping to speak at that as well. And Ian working very hard still from home, doing his best to uh, help get that event out. Uh, so uh, det uh, more details at alternativeview.co.uk or on the UK Column community site at the moment. And we'll have more up uh, in the next day or so. 
Excellent. Uh, just a little taster. A few days ago, I did an interview with a gentleman called Jason Barnett. He was reporting on abuse of children in school, tragically often uh, leading to suicide of children. But what his story really covers is massive cover up by the state institutions who should be protecting children. And of course, um, one out of 650 MPs got involved, but that'll come up on the UK Column website. Uh, fairly shortly, so watch out for that. Uh, and uh, more from Northern Exposure, David. In a five-part series uh, of, of interviews with Samantha Baldwin that covers uh, child stealing by the state, um, SRA and, and the operation of the family courts where uh, the, the children are taken and handed over to the alleged abuser, the, 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 the man that they say abused them. Um, I, I, I've a really stunning interview, uh, uh, and a, a very, a very courageous woman who uh, will not be uh, defeated by the injustice. Okay, and uh, premiering tonight. Yes, so this is Dr. Kevin Corbett. A, a, a really striking interview on all things um, COVID-related, but tying it back to uh, the history of the of the vac of the virus industry and his experience as a, as a nurse in the field of HIV AIDS in, in the 80s and 90s. Um, and he's talking about the Nazification of the NHS. And that may seem a very strong uh, way of expressing uh, the problem. But uh, he makes a, a, a very sound uh, and, and, and thoughtful case for it being just that. Okay, and those are available uh, on the Northern Exposure YouTube channel, which uh, uh, is doing well for subscribers so far. Um, so search for Northern Exposure on YouTube and uh, then uh, uh, we've got episode seven of De Deconstructing the Magic Money Tree out. Yes, uh, looking at uh, some central bank policies and central bank and political complicity, complicity in, um, in, in, in pushing a particular agenda. And um, uh, so that it's very difficult these days to say where banking stops and government starts. It's all one a very uh, tightly integrated organism. So we get into some of these features and uh, we're hoping to bring many more magic money trees in, in, in the weeks to come as there seems to be a great deal of uh, monetary insanity to discuss. Uh, absolutely, so that's on the UK Column website. So what's next, Brian? Uh, well, this is an email from the Mayor of London following up an email to him. Thank you for contacting the Mayor of London about police behavior at peaceful demonstration in Trafalgar Square. I'm writing to inform you we passed on your correspondent to the Mayor's Office for Policing and Crime. Uh, the Mayor of London, as the Police and Crime Commissioner of London, is responsible for setting out policing and crime priorities for London and holds the Commissioner of the Metropolitan Police to account. So that's good to hear, isn't it? That good. They're going to hold the uh, Metropolitan Police uh, Commissioner to account. Uh, the Mayor apparently exercises his role as Police and Crime Commissioner for the Capital through MOPAC, which is the strategic oversight body tasked with devising the Police and Crime Plan and ensuring it's delivered. Given this, it's appropriate we pass your correspondence uh, to the Mayor's Office for Policing and Crime. They aim to respond within 20 working days. If you have any further questions, please contact MOPAC directly. We aim to respond as soon as possible. 
However, please take note, some cases involve investigation, so it may take longer for a response to be issued. We're saying to the viewer, well done for getting in there and asking the questions. Um, what I notice is on the bottom of the email that came back from the uh, mayor's office is a promotion of Black Lives Matter which um, I thought was an extremist group which was busily intimidating people and wantingly damaging property. Um, but there we go. So um, we'll, we'll just say well done for that exchange. There should be thousands of more um, people actually uh, are getting their views across to the Mayor of London about the Trafalgar Square policing. Um, okay, David, let's move across the Atlantic and uh, Donald Trump. And well, the media over there going nuts over his, uh, his illness. Uh, and here is, uh, well, the headline is Death Watch. A CNN media yes. panel likens Trump health <laughs> to Stalin's demise. Yes, it's quite striking. So yeah, nuts is the word. Um, this, that, and you can always rely on CNN if you want really extreme stuff. Uh, so they had uh, a commentator on, a woman called Gre uh, Gesson. Uh, she, she wasted no time in comparing Trump's health condition to Stalin's death. She said, well, you know, Brian, they've got Brian as well. You know, Brian, there's been a lot of comparisons to the Soviet Union in the last couple of days. I think they're not unwarranted. The particular period I'm thinking about is something I've written about a lot, which were the days of Stalin's death watch. Now... Uh, I, I just think this is spectacular propaganda. I mean, if you're going to lie, go big. If you're going to do <laughs> fake news, don't 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 mess around in the shallow end. You go up to the top level and you you dive off and you go into the deepest part of the pool. And that's what CNN have done. It's spectacular. Now, um, but I'm looking at the overall coverage of the the um, uh, the election in America. And COVID aside, it's awfully like 2016 because. The mainstream, even bits of the mainstream, it tends to be quite thoughtful, like the Spectator, which we're about to see. They're saying, you know, creepy Joe's got it in the bag. Joe Biden's, you know, just coasting to victory here. So this is a, a, the, the Spectator piece. The US election is Joe Biden's to lose. And it talks about his 15 percentage point advantage in the polls. And, um, and Trump is four weeks away from being beaten like a drum a la Jimmy Carter 1980. So Biden's, you know, approaching this huge win, according to the media. But other commentators, commentators who got it right in 2016, they're having a different view. Um, they're seeing it actually quite the opposite. So this is a, a, a Kevin McCulloch um, on Twitter with his map of what he thinks is going to happen. So he reckons Trump's going to get 330 and Biden will be left with the coastal strips in one or two states uh, on 198. Um, so we'll see. I would also say that another similarity between now and, and four years ago is the enthusiasm of the Trump supporters is everywhere to be seen. And the enthusiasm in the, in the Democrat supporters is nowhere to be seen, even more so than it was under Hillary. I mean, Joe Biden is no Hillary Clinton. Uh, absolutely. <laughs> well, yes and no. <laughs> uh, but but, but you, can take, you can take that in many ways. Now, this, this, this last one, I have to say that I, I can't help but like Trump because he does annoy all the right people. And the people who were going mental over this one were, were a, a, a very large list. You can pre-order at $100 
quote, Trump defeats COVID commemorative coins at the White House gift shop. <laughs> and this is just one of many, many things which are trolling his opposition in ways which drives them uh, to levels of new uh, insanity and, and is deeply, deeply comedic. Yes. Okay. Well, uh, let's move on now. Um, if uh, you aren't aware, uh, there's been a declaration from, it's called the Great Barrington Declaration. Um, and it's about COVID, of course, but more about the response to COVID from Western governments. Now, who's behind it? Uh, well, the uh, usual suspects, Martin uh, Kuldorf, uh, Sinatra Gupta, uh, Jay Bhattacharya, uh, and uh, they have uh, produced uh, a declaration which basically goes along the lines of, as infectious disease epidemiologists and public health scientists, we have grave concerns about the damaging physical and mental health impacts of the prevailing COVID-19 policies and recommend an approach we call focused protection. Uh, and they go on to describe that. They say keeping these measures in place uh, until a vaccine, uh, 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 keep, this is the government measures are talking about, keeping the government measures in place until a vaccine is available will cause irreparable damage uh, with the underprivileged disproportionately harmed. Uh, as immunity builds in the population, the risk of infection to all, including the vulnerable, falls. Uh, we know that all populations will eventually reach herd immunity, i.e. the point at which the rate of new infections is stable. Uh, and this can be assisted by, but not dependent upon a vaccine. Um, our goal should therefore be to minimize mortality and social harm until we reach herd immunity. Uh, and it, uh, it, it continues on. It's not uh, much longer than that, but do read it. Uh, and they are welcoming signatures, but uh, so far they've had uh, 2,651 medical and public health scientists signing, uh, 3,463 medical practitioners signing, and 53,801 uh, from the general public, but uh, you know, people might like to uh, to sign that. Well, again, this is uh, people are trying to do something. Um, this requires support, and the more support we give it, the more chance we've got of extra pressure pressure on the government of occupation. Uh, now, another quick ad for something on the column website. But we were talking over the last few uh, days and weeks about uh, positive tests not being cases, uh, and uh, well, we have an article up. Uh, called uh, COVID-19, Everything and Nothing. This is from Ian Davis. Fantastical, fantastic article. I just want to uh, take one quote out of it. Uh, he's saying the Chinese team amplified uh, the cDNA through 40 PCR cycles. While this is quite normal for qPCR experiments, in doing so, they also amplified all dilution errors. That is, they amplified all contaminants too. Uh, according to the MIQE standards for, P for qPCR, 40 cycles is the absolute limit of reliability and anything above 35 cycles would indicate that the quantity of target RNA cannot be known. In other words, uh, if you run a PCR test and recycle it over 35 times, you're starting to introduce massive errors. Uh, and in fact, in the UK, uh, the PCR tests seem to be being run uh, through 40 to 45, sometimes 50 cycles. Um, and this is why the, the false positive rate is so high. So this article explains why that's happening, how it's happening, and what the implications are. And I really do encourage everybody to read that and share it as far and wide as possible. Now, let's move on then. Um, and uh, here is Dominic Rabb. Well, he and his Canadian sidekick um, have uh, issued a statement on Nagorno-Karabakh, which Patrick was talking about 
uh, on Friday's program, and they're saying Canada and the United Kingdom reiterate the urgent need to end the continuing military action in and around the Nagorno-Karabakh conflict zone. Uh, we are particularly concerned by reports of shelling of civilian in areas. So, David, the first point here is, as we pointed out on Friday's program, uh, the, 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 we're starting to see a very Syrian type of narrative being built here. Uh, and of course, what's happened, uh, the Turkey has imported jihadists from Idlib into Nagorno-Karabakh. Uh, we're starting to see a very uh, Syrian type scenario being set up and the same kind of narratives coming out of the British government and the Canadian government in this case. Uh, we're very concerned about reports of shelling of civilian areas. But of course, the people that are doing this are people that we funded, our government funded in the first place. Yes, and this will all play into the bad Russians narrative because the Russians will support the, the Armenians and uh, it will it has the potential to to escalate and to become uh, years of struggle in the way that uh, that Syria was. Um, so we need to be making sure that uh, any funds, any any sources of funding from the West of the type that were channeled in huge quantities into Syria um, are not available this time round, because um, once once is bad enough, but twice it is really. Uh, beyond the pale. Uh, it certainly is. Uh, I was just going to say, whose side is the British government on? Because I think um, Boris is, is very pro-Turkey, isn't he? Well, of course, he is one of the founders of the Conservative Friends of Turkey. And as we mentioned on Friday's programme, uh, his uh, grandfather, uh, great-grandfather, sorry, uh, named Kemal was Turkish. And his, uh, his grandfather changed his name from uh, Kemal to to Johnson. Um, so uh, we're not sure what Boris is. But if you want some more background to this, again, on the UK Column website, just published uh, Alex Thompson's second Eastern Approaches podcast, uh, Far Away People from whom we, of Whom We Know Nothing, Azerbaijan and Turkey's War on Armenia is all about what's going on in Armenia and Azerbaijan and Nagorno-Karabakh. So do uh, listen to that and share it as widely as possible. Now, let's move on to uh, this gentleman, uh, Alexei Navalny, uh, because he's back in the news. Uh, definitely Novichok now. It's definitely, definitely Novichok uh, because the OPCW has released a statement, but we'll come on to that in a second. Now, of course, if you remember, uh, uh, Angela Merkel had said that this crime against Navalny was aimed against the fundamental rights and values we stand for. It raises questions only Russia can answer. Well, Russia's so put out by all this that they have now invited the OPCW to Russia to investigate there, um, <clears throat> but sadly not in time um, to avoid the OPCW uh, making their statement. But if we remember back to uh, uh, a couple of years ago after Salisbury, Theresa May, then Prime Minister, had said uh, that they had agreed to strengthen the ability of the OPCW to attribute responsibility for chemical weapons attacks. This is following the Salisbury alleged chemical weapons attack. Uh, use of Novichok and so on. Well, the OPCW weren't prepared to do that this time. So let's just have a look and see what their statement actually says. Uh, it says, the results of the analysis by the OPCW designated laboratories of biomedical samples collected by the OPCW team and shared with the Federal Republic of Germany confirmed that the biomarkers of the uh, cholinesterase inhibitor found in Mr. Navalny's blood and urine samples have similar structural uh, characteristics as the tox toxic chemicals belonging to schedules 1A14 and 1A15. So what they're saying there is that the uh, alleged Novichok 
in, his, uh, in the samples that they have received uh, was similar to the Novichok identified from, uh, from Salisbury. Uh, and it goes on to say, uh, and that these were added to the Annex on Chemical Weapons, uh, sorry, Annex on Chemicals to the Convention during the 24th session of the Conference of the States Parties in November 2019. Uh, however, Navalny's cholesterolase inhibitor is not listed in the Annex uh, and chemicals to the convention. So it's a bit unfortunate uh, that uh, it's not the same Novichok uh, that was uh, being used at Salisbury. So they couldn't uh, quite attribute blame in the way that they did in 2019. Uh, but David, uh, uh, as a result, the only uh, mainstream media outlet that I saw that gave any honest reporting to this uh, was Sputnik. Uh, the BBC, The Times and the rest um, really tried to present this as being uh, the OPCW confirms that Russia uh, did it. Uh, it doesn't get any better and they keep banging the same old drum. Yes, that's very significant. Uh, are we meant to believe that Russia so um, dissatisfied with the uh, lack of toxicity of the, of the Novichok and Salisbury um, and the fact that it was defeated by baby wipes uh, has has tried to reformulate and, and come up with something better and failed again um it does none of this rings true no no it's certainly it's certainly it's it's, it's clearly not a, a serious problem it's a bit i suppose you could say it's a bit like uh uh coroni it doesn't seem to do its job very well Coroni is um obviously much safer if you're below about 70 much safer than the flu um, and and is a strange character to um, star in an end of world um, disaster movie that we're all currently living through. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, okay, let's uh, head back up north and uh, Belaskin House. Uh, tell us what the latest is. Yes, this is a, a couple of extracts from a letter that uh, myself and my colleagues at uh, the Fresh Start Foundation wrote to Councillor James Gray. Um, highlighting um, the issues at Boleskin House. So this was introducing the fact that the, the Fresh Start Foundation has been asked by a local, uh, a local group to, to represent their views, which we're doing. Um, and it, uh, the letter went on to say many things, but it, at one particular point it quoted um, Alistair Crowley. Now the, the background here is, Al is Alistair Crowley lived at Boleskin. It's viewed as a, 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 a a place of pilgrimage for Satanists. You can get an app if you if you if you're Muslim, you can get an app for your phone to say which direction Mecca is. If you're Satanist, you can get one for your phone that points to Boleskin House. That's the level of importance it has in that world. Um, and there, the Boleskin House Foundation are clear that they want to um, organise the, the this this development to uh, remember and uh, further the interests of Alistair Crowley and his work and his thinking and his writings. So we explored what those writings include. Um, so there's a couple of quotes here. Um, this is from uh, Alistair Crowley's book, Magic in Theory and Practice. He said, quote, the bloody sacrifice has from time immemorial been the most considered part of magic. A separate quote, um, from the highest spiritual working one, one must accordingly choose that victim which contains the greatest and purest force. A male child of perfect innocence and high intelligence is the most satisfactory and suitable victim, end quote. And, and another quote here, uh, those magicians who object to the use of blood have endeavoured to replace it with incense, but the bloody sacrifice, which is more dangerous, is more efficacious 
and for nearly all purposes, human sacrifice is best. So that's what he wrote. So we wrote to the planning committee who are now considering this and asked them, you know, to um, to allow us to make a presentation to the committee and to consider the real effects of having a shrine to Alistair Crowley in the Highlands. Um, that was a couple of weeks ago. So far, no response. We're waiting on a reply. Um, I also highlight here uh, an excellent book um, on um, uh, called the, the the Vice of Kings. This is it here, um, and it's by Jason Horsley. Right now, he's explaining here that the subtitle of the book is "How Socialism, Occultism, and the Sexual Revolution Engineered a Culture of Abuse," and it starts off looking at things like Fabian socialist societies. But the, la the second half of the book is mostly about Crowley. And, um, and Jason Horsley asks a key question. Why, he says, why, when Crowley's book, Lieber Al says, take strange drugs, it means it literally. But when it says, sacrifice cattle little and big after a child, or the best blood is that of a child, it is using a cult code known only to a few. Because this is a defense of, of Crowley's work. It's, it's talking explicitly about child sacrifice, but it doesn't actually mean that it's code for something else. He's asking, well, if everything else in the book isn't code, why is that bit code? And this is an excellent question. So the, there's been a lot of letters coming in from all around the world. The Satanists have been spurred into action by the letter writing campaign um, objecting to this application by UK column viewers. So there's been letters coming in from all around the world to support the Blessing House development. So I, I would ask people if they are concerned, uh, and I know many are, about Boleskin House, uh, the development and the link with Alistair Crowley and Satanism, to express those concerns, renew your objection to, uh, or make your objection to the application, um, and uh, write to these people here. Councillor James Gray and Councillor Margaret Davidson are both on the planning committee. David uh, Muddy is um, a, a planner uh, who's responsible for the, for looking at the project, and Malcolm McLeod is the chief executive of the council. If you um, can put your uh, polite, well-reasoned and well-informed thoughts on this matter to those people, that would be greatly appreciated. Okay, thank you for that, David. Amazing, isn't it? In one hand, we're defending um, a Satanist mecca, as it were, and um, we've got Ixa here now attacking the church for its uh, wanton abuse of children. Uh, I have no doubt that the Church of England was involved in this sort of thing, and their report clearly shows that it was. Um, but I, I, I can't help but feeling that there's a timely attack to this to um, help go for the church at this particular time. Um, but this is the male report on it. What did they find? That the church had neglected well-being of children in favour of protecting its reputation. A culture of secrecy and uh, deference to the church allowed sex predators to hide. There was a disproportionate loyalty to church members, meaning that individual priests refused to condemn or investigate alleged perpetrators. Church members naively thought the child's sex abuse by priests was unlikely or impossible because of their religious beliefs and moral code. It went on. The moral authority of the church was widely perceived as beyond reproach. The church's failure to respond to alleged sexual abuse added to victims' trauma. Significant numbers of offenders in the church involved downloading child porn. Stripping bishops of powers to investigate and punish priests could stop abuse. Uh, well, Alexis J, 
said this well it was reported in the article she's running it so I, I believe that the words must have come from her within the church there was a disproportional loyalty to members of one's own tribe this extended inappropriately to safeguarding practice with the protection of some accused of child sexual abuse perpetrators were defended by their peers who also sought to reintegrate them into church life without consideration of the welfare or protection of the child what i find so incredible about uh, this lady's statements is of course through the whole of the ICSA um, process that inquiry has quietly been uh, putting up a wall to evidence um, some abuse survivors uh, have been prevented from giving evidence to that inquiry clearly to help skew their findings uh, Melanie Shaw was one of the people refused the opportunity to give evidence uh, but we also know that witness statements have been carefully passed back to the government in in order for elements to be redacted to protect the the tribe of the British state uh, we're on the stops for time uh, David so I'll, I'll end there we'll do something more on this but the um, sheer hypocrisy of uh, Alexis J and the ICSA inquiry I just find well difficult to describe really the inquiry um, in England and the inquiry in Scotland which I'm more familiar with um, are uh, about managing the problem they're not about revealing the problem because I think if we knew the true extent um, they fear the country will become ungovernable or at least ungovernable by the people who currently govern us um, and that is what they seek to avoid so it's about letting everyone down gently um, or sometimes not so gently yeah well we will do more on it several people are commenting at the moment saying we we should roll on but we are short of time yeah. we'll come back to it um, okay David uh, well I don't really know where to start with this. Uh, just to end the program, uh, this little uh, graphic. Thank you very much for it. Yes, I thought this was particularly apt. The descent of conservatism, uh, based on on the the, the, the famous um, ascent of man, um, and a diagram which popularised evolution. And here you see Churchill, and of somewhat less stature, Thatcher, and uh, and then down on on to uh, Cameron. And Boris, the the shortest and least developed of all, and they that had something of the truth about it. I thought. Yeah. Well. Yes. I think we could have a discussion. Uh, well, of course, what's missing is what's fully on the right of the screen, where that is leading to, and that's what we must cover. Yes. Okay. All right. We'll end there. Thank you very much to all our viewers and listeners for joining us. Thank you very much for people joining the UK column from overseas. We know you're there. We appreciate you being with us. And a very big thank you to everybody who's subscribing or donating. We can only do what we do with your ongoing help. Thanks for joining us. Bye bye. bye, -bye.